Amen. Hey, pull up a seat. Pull up a seat. Good morning. Oh, talk back to me. Good morning. Thank you. It helps me relax. Okay, it's a lifelong, lifelong habit. Yeah. If you don't say anything, I wonder, okay, are they really there? But uh, you are. Now, my name is Pastor Dale. It's my privilege to teach the Word here at Seacoast along with Pastor Ryan. Take your Bibles out. If you have a Bible, you have it on your notebook or your iPhone, whatever, but no checking email. Promise? Okay, I just thought I'd throw that in. But anyway, okay. Uh, go, to, go to Ephesians chapter 6 today. Ephesians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 10 as we launch into the final section of this book. It's a three-part series. Final section of the book, chapter 6, verse 10 to the end of the book. We've been in Ephesians now for a long time, man. We started back in the fall in a study of this great book and began to take it apart passage by passage. And we've been learning a lot of stuff. We've been learning about in chapters 1 through 3 how we have a, a special relationship with God by His grace where we become a child of God, as we were just singing about. And we become a child of God, but not only that, we learn in chapter 3 you're connected to the family of God. So God's grace makes you His kid, makes you His child, makes you His beloved son or daughter, but then it connects you to this thing called the church or the family of God too. So you now you're a new person with a new family. And then in chapter 4, we've been, we've been studying the implications of that for our everyday life. We learned in chapters 4 that now we are, you are a gifted part of the body. You have significance. God gives you gifts and abilities to use to, to involve yourself in His kingdom's work and, his, and what He's doing on planet Earth. You now have new purpose, new significance to life. We learn later in that chapter that you also now have the wisdom to begin to walk with God. Chapter 5 says uh, we're going to walk in love as Christ loved us. We're going to walk in His wisdom instead of in darkness. We're going to walk in the light. We're going to walk with power by His Spirit. That's an exciting list in chapters 4 and 5. And then he gets even more personal. The last five weeks we have discovered that he begins to apply our relationship with God to our relationships with each other. Relate. The last five weeks we changed by God's grace. We learned we can change how we relate to one another as husbands, as wives, as parents, as kids, in the workplace, whether you own the company or whether you are the boss, or whether, whether you own the company as the boss or whether you are just the entry-level worker, doesn't matter. We have changed relationships because of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but that's enough for me to go forth and to go out and live differently in Christ. But today, we come to a word that I don't want you to miss. It's this word, finally. Finally. Now, if you're not careful, you can misinterpret that word as simply meaning, okay, i got one more thing to say and then I'll shut up, okay? That's not what the Apostle Paul was saying when he wrote to this church, and then he said, finally. It wasn't like, okay, i got one more thing. What he meant by that word, and if you study it in the context of the Greek language and how it applies to this epistle, what it really means is this. Finally, let me tell you one more vital thing that is so important that everything else we've been learning can get missed, can go away. If you want to be changed by Christ you better learn this final truth. That's kind of the power of that word finally. 
So let's pray. and We're going to jump in and see what that significant truth is today. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you care about teaching us about your grace and the new life we have in Christ, the new family we have as your church, the new significance that you give us in, in gifting us and calling us to ministry and to make a difference in our world and the new relationships that you want us to have. But now, Father, finally, teach us, uh, teach us this uh, day and for the next two weeks uh, the truth that enables us to succeed in our battle to be who you want us to be. That's my prayer. In Christ's name, amen. 1941, the U.S. experienced what most strategists would say was the greatest single defeat of our military in U.S. history. In one day. December 7th, 1941. I'm talking about what? Pearl Harbor. If you're like me, I wasn't around. My dad was. As a 17-year-old, he decided that day to lie about his age and sign up for the Navy because he was that ticked off. Found himself on a Navy ship in a place... uh, in a place in a different side of the world a few years later, um, offloading troops into landing craft uh, for one of the beaches on D-Day. That was a tragic day in the life of our nation. The question I raise as I bring it up today is this, what was the reason for that defeat that day? And I'm going to let you vote. Are you ready? You say yes or no. Get involved. Number one, was it uh, insufficient training? Yes or no? I don't think so. How about inadequate uh, military might? How about inferior weaponry? How about a lack of, just maybe it was lack of courage? Yeah, the answer to all those questions is no, 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 no. Why did they suffer that defeat? It was simple. It's because they didn't know they were in a fight. They didn't know that a war had begun. They didn't know they had an enemy planning to attack them. It was just a nice Sunday morning to relax, take a day off, not have to do drills, go to the beach, maybe surf a little bit. If you've seen the movies... Boy, you know, all those sailors were really good looking. Did you notice that? (laughs) At least in the movie. Yeah. Well, my dad was when he went in, in response to that defeat. But the defeat was caused by a blindness to the very fact that we had an enemy who was scheming to take us out. That was 75 years ago, and I think today... In terms of our spiritual lives, the church and the culture is repeating the same mistake. Is there a battle going on? And do you understand who the enemy is? And do we understand his schemes, his strategies? Because if you do, you got a lot better chance 
of succeeding against him. Does that make sense? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage today. It's only four verses long, but this passage is going to tell us three things. It's going to tell us the nature of the enemy that we're up against. It's going to tell us the strategy. The passage mentions the schemes of that enemy. I'm, I'm going to take you to some other passages of Scripture to help us understand what he means, but the schemes of the enemy. So we'll see the nature of the enemy, the schemes of the enemy, and then we'll wrap up with a couple quick tips on so what is the secret to success against this enemy. All right, here we go. Listen to the Word of God. But before we do that, I wanted you to just to get a glimpse into the culture in which we live and, and let's go to the streets of Encinitas and see, are people really aware of this battle? Okay, let's roll. Let's go to the streets first. Well, hello, we'll everyone. To Today, we are walking the streets of Encinitas, this wonderful city, a very spiritual city. And we're just asking people what they believe about the spiritual realm. Well, yeah, sure. I believe in a, uh, an afterlife or a, a spiritual world. I do believe that there's a world outside the one we live in. It would give us a reason for being here to think that there's something after. But unfortunately, I'm not sure there is something. I just believe that there's something else out there, but don't know what it is, and I'm not going to try to guess, but I believe. I believe that God is his own person, and we can pray to him, but we can't do anything to control what he has planned for us. Um, I haven't really thought about it. I don't really know. I don't know. I have no experience uh, with that, so I don't think it's real, but yeah, it would be nice. I believe that once everyone dies, everyone goes to heaven. I think actually there is uh, life after death. Like my great-grandma, she had Alzheimer's, and she actually saw like her brothers and sisters in the afterworld, actually. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, no, I think there is, and that's good, because, I mean, what are, what are you going to do? Like, you got to do something. If I die, I want like the perfect waves all day, every day. Angels and demons, do they exist? Is there a battle going on? I do believe that there are demons, but I think that they're your personal demons and that you can overcome them. Definitely angels, they do look over you and help you out. Demons, I don't know. I'm not, I'm, that's kind of a negative vibe. I mean, I think angels are better, but yeah. <laughs> I look at the positive versus the demons and things of that nature. Actually, no, not so much angels and demons, mostly just... God and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's hard for me to believe in something that I can't see. I like the idea of angels and people need them for inspiration, but at the same time, you have to be a realist. I don't think they're going to come down and save you when you're going through a tough time. So if you're to capture that in a word, it's confused, wondering, but not sure, right? And by the way, I, don't, uh, I wouldn't make fun of any of those people that were kind enough to give us those interviews. Because they're kind of coming at it from their own experience. As one person said, I can't really believe in something I can't see. Or another person says, you know, yeah, they're probably there. Uh, I'll go for angels, uh, you know, demons, kind of a negative vibe. Who wants that, right? So the reality is, where do you go to understand the truth about things that you can't see? That's the question. Listen to the word of God, because God understood that we would not have the answer so he's going to give it to us today. Let's get started. Ephesians chapter 6. Listen to the word of God. Finally, finally, of utmost importance, if we're going to live out all of this stuff we've been studying, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Father God, I just pray that as we study your word now, that you would help us understand uh, truth about things that we can't see. We do live in a world, Father, full of spiritual forces, and we pray that you'd uh, kind of blow away some of the misconceptions, uh, some of the false thinking, and help us to think clearly about things that obviously are vital to us being ready for the battle that is already on in Christ's name. That's my prayer. Amen. Nature of the enemy, schemes of the enemy, success against the enemy. Let's take the nature of the enemy first. And I want to teach it in the passage in that order because it kind of makes sense to me at least as I try to understand it. Even though I'm actually going to take the passage a little bit out of sequence, okay? So it's 10 through 13. Pick it up first in verses 11 and 12. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Four, here's the nature of the enemy. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against, and he gives a series of words, rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. What do we learn about the nature of our enemy in life as Christians? Let me give it to you. Three big ideas, and we'll talk about them. Number one, it definitely teaches that the enemy is real, yet usually unseen. Real, yet unseen. He uses two key phrases. He says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Now, why would he say that? You've got to realize, he's been talking about relationships between flesh and blood, people. He's been talking about how we struggle to love one another in marriage and husbands and wives and parents and kids and bosses and and slaves and masters. And and now, so he comes back now and he says, but as, as important as human relationships are, our real enemy is not that person that drives you crazy. Our real enemy is not your husband, your wife, your parent, your kid, your boss. The real enemy is not flesh and blood, but it's spiritual. He uses the phrase, it is spiritual forces in the heavenlies. You see, God created not just planet earth, he also created the heavens. God created not only creatures that live and breathe on planet earth, like you, me, and animals and others, God also created spiritual beings. Now there's a word for these spiritual beings that he created, and the word is, uh, when I pause, you talk, okay, it's a little technique i use okay yeah and okay spiritual beings that god created the word is angels okay good get that the word is angels that god created angelic beings to serve him now we also know that sometime probably before creation even there was a rebellion that's described in the book of isaiah for example in ezekiel where he talks about that there was a rebellion against god led by a a one of the angelic beings Uh, It was an angelic being, uh, Lucifer, that God actually refers to as the most beautiful of the angels. So this, 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 uh, who who is later nicknamed Satan or the devil. So, you know, this, this angel leads a rebellion and there are angels that are 
committed to, to live out their created purpose of serving God. And there are angels that said, you know something? We're tired of being under God. We want to be like God. And they rose up out of pride and rebelled along with Satan uh, against God. So what we have in the spiritual realm are two types of beings. There are good angels, bad angels. There are angels that serve God. There are angels that oppose the things of God. But they're all angelic beings that were created by God. So one of the misconceptions that tells me is when I'm trying to identify or be aware of the presence or the activity of angelic beings, uh, good angels, bad angels look alike. Now, you know, we depict them in movies and shows and, and art. We depict them in very different ways. You know, good angels are beautiful and all that kind of stuff. And, and bad angels are ugly and, and red uh, with pointed tails and pitchforks. You know, but the fact of the matter is angels are angels. Well, you know, and some are good and some are evil. And they do exist. They do indeed exist. So there are spiritual forces in the heavenlies. Number two, the enemy is not only real, the enemy is powerful. This passage has a lot of power words in it. Uh, Yet, let's be clear, uh, that they are no match for God. Lest we go out of the doors today fearful of this angelic evil world. Uh, They are powerful, yet no match for God. Uses four terms that are power terms. Number one, it involves... Our battle is against rulers. Now, normally when you see the word rulers, what do you think of? Uh, you think of earthly rulers. You think of nations, right? And, uh, and there is a possibility that this applies to that. But it's also true that when you, when you read Scripture, you find out that both with good angels and bad angels, there, there, are a, there is authority structure in what they do. So there are angels that oversee other angels on behalf of God, and the same thing would be true of demonic forces. So, so the fact is uh, there are, uh, quote, rulers within the spiritual realm as well as within the physical realm. You know, at the same time, he follows it by mentioning powers. And then he mentions world forces. Then he mentions spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And some commentators, and I would tend to agree with this, uh, think that this is emphasizing the fact that the spiritual realm affects the natural realm. In other words, our, our, our struggle is not just against uh, Satan or a demon here and there. It's also against the, the, the structures that they influence as they spread their wickedness and evil into culture and into thinking as they spread their lies and their falsehoods, uh, not just into your mind, but into the minds of nations. In fact, later on, I'll show you a passage in Revelation where Satan is referred to as the deceiver of the nations. And there it's clearly talking about the deception that he pulls off to get entire people movements or groups or nations to, uh, to be fooled and deceived and not know the truth. So uh, this rulers could very well apply to the governments that fall under the influence of the evil one. And he indeed wants to work through governments, through nations. It's not uncommon. So we deal with rulers, either in the angelic world or else perhaps a reference to the influence that the evil has over cultures. Uh, We deal with powers. Dangerous, yes. Don't underestimate the enemy. 
But elsewhere, Scripture says, fear not, because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world, meaning Satan. So the Spirit of God that lives in you as a follower of Jesus is clearly powerful. But be respectful that we have rulers, we have powers. Third, where we have world forces of darkness. There are forces, there are powerful forces at work in our world. They are instigated, if not controlled by Satan, who is in the agents of darkness. So Satan and his cohorts, as agents of darkness, have an influence in the world uh, through world forces of darkness. This could be a reference to cults, to the occult, could be a reference to false religions, false philosophies. But all of these things represent darkness. All of these things are steering people away from the light. Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, I'm the light. He says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus represents life and light, and darkness and death is represented by the enemy. So we have an enemy that propagates ideas that foster darkness and death as well. There are spiritual forces of wickedness, he says. This is nasty stuff. Spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now there is no doubt, no matter what you believe about all the circumstances surrounding mass shootings, there is no doubt that uh, you know when people walk into a bar and uh, execute 50 people that they do not even know in the name of God, that is wickedness. That is wickedness at a level that you, uh, it's always been around, but it's been more and more clear more recently. And that wickedness is rooted in satanic forces and lies and ideas that are propagated through uh, the influence of culture, the influence even of false religion, the influence of, of a person's, uh, the, you know, the, the wickedness of, of the human heart. That we, we don't understand that apart from Jesus Christ, we all have the incredible capacity for wickedness. We like to say that, you know, apart from Christ, we're all just kind of pretty nice guys and gals. You know, the scriptures talk about the human heart and as being deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Um, so there's a, there's a lot of things about our worldview that, that we need to clear up today. And part of that is wickedness does indeed exist. And there are powerful forces behind it. And that is part of the battle whenever we try to represent and live for Christ in today's world. So, number one, the nature of the enemy is spiritual. Number two, the, uh, it's a spiritual, powerful, unseen enemy. Um, secondly, the enemy is powerful but no match for God. So don't fear but yet respect it. Number three, the enemy is strategic, plotting ways to take us out plotting ways to thwart the expansion of the kingdom of God that brings light and life. So darkness doesn't like the light. Death doesn't like the life. And so there is a battle that is going on, and it's going on in ways that we see, but it's also going on in ways that we don't see in spiritual realms. That is the reality of the world in which we live. The key phrase for this third observation is he says, you need to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That word schemes tells me that this is not um, the force be with you, the force of good and evil that doesn't have a brain but is just kind of out there. This is not the Star Wars force. This is an intelligent, scheming, strategic 
evil that wants to thwart the expansion of the kingdom of God and your growth in Jesus Christ. So the fact is, if we have an enemy who is strong but not as strong as God, who is unseen but yet real, and who is strategic and scheming, how do we stand against him? Two things. Number one, understand his schemes. If that's his nature, then we need to understand what's it mean when it talks about the schemes of the devil or the schemes of wickedness uh, that perpetrate um, and infiltrate our culture and our thinking. How, How do we stand against it? So all today's passage does is say, look, he is a scheming enemy. So I went elsewhere in Scripture, and I want to kind of take you outside of Ephesians now and give you four schemes of the enemy that are revealed when you look at the names for the enemy given in Scripture. So I'm going to give you four names for our enemy. Here it is. Number one, the enemy is the darkness. The darkness. But it's the darkness disguised as an angel of light. Let me get through some passages real quick here, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. He says, so in the church there are false apostles. So this is inside the church. This is not outside the church. There were false apostles disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And he says, no wonder they do this, for even Satan, who is behind them, disguises himself as an angel of light. So Satan doesn't tempt us. He doesn't control us. He doesn't come at us looking like this scary devil creature that we, uh, that we see in the movies or whatever. That's not him. He comes looking like an angel of light. He comes offering beauty that ends in ugliness. He comes offering pleasure that actually produces pain. He comes offering promises to your life that he does not intend to and cannot deliver on. That's the nature of our enemy. He's not a in-your-face, I'm going to blow you over and overpower you kind of guy. He is a deceptive angel of light. Therefore, expect deception. That's the big idea. Leads to number two. The angel of light, which will often look good but, but not be real, not be true. Number two is, therefore, the deceiver. That's the most common single phrase I can find for Satan. He is the deceiver. In fact, Jesus calls him the father of lies. Revelation 20, verse 2. I'll give you a couple passages. Revelation 22. These are in your handout, but fill in the blanks. Here we go. Revelation 20, verse 2 says, The dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil or Satan. Now, in case you're not getting it, he repeats four different words to let you know who he's talking about. He's talking about the angelic being, Satan, that rebelled against God and led this rebel rebellion. The dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, Satan, is bound. Now, he's not bound now. This is talking about in future. In the future, there will be a time in which Christ returns, returns to the, or, to the earth, establishes his kingdom, and one thing that Jesus does is Satan is taken and he is bound up. And, and here's the result of that, that he would not deceive the nations any longer. So what that tells me is Satan and his cohorts and his philosophy of evil and wickedness targets not just individuals but nations so that's why uh, never look to any government including the u.s to give you truth concerning spiritual things 
or concerning moral things, or concerning issues of sexuality, or concerning issues of things such as marriage or godliness. Don't look to your government to do that. That's not what they do, because they are under the general global control of world forces of darkness, evil forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And it's, it's pervasive on planet Earth right now. So, Realize that Satan doesn't just work on individuals, he works on nations. Now why would he do that? It's because if he wants to affect the maximum number of people, he tries to affect culture and, and nations, and, and you see it all around the world in different, in different ways. If he can convince a nation to officially no longer believe in God or to, to remove God from their... Uh, from their, their textbooks or whatever, he'll do that. If he goes to a nation that is not going to do that, then he'll take them down the road of false religion and false thinking about God. So Satan will play you and he'll play nations however it takes to keep you away from Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line. If you want to not believe in God, he'll help provide reasons why you shouldn't do that. If, you, if he knows that you, you, you're, you're firm on believing in God, then he will try to take your religiousness and take it crazy and take it into untruth in a different direction. But he's always moving you away from Jesus Christ. That's the common factor. So therefore, Jesus calls him. Let me give you a couple more references. John eight forty four. Jesus said, You are of your father the devil. Now he's talking to religious leaders who were refusing to follow him. So he's not talking about ancient occultic pagans here. He's talking about Jewish leaders who were refusing to follow Jesus, the Pharisees. And he says this, you're of your father the devil. You want to do the desire of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. It's easy for him to lie. He's a liar and the father of lies. Now he's saying this to leaders of a religious movement. Do you get that? See, you know, so, so whenever you uh, approach life and you say, well, you know, all religions are good and all religions are the same. And they're all kind of different, but they've all kind of got some commonality. And, and you should just kind of be pro-religion period, and, and not fuss or debate or investigate uh, to seek out truth and whether or not this is true or not. Uh, the, you're buying into a wicked lie of the evil one. Jesus himself calls out false religion as a lie. And, you know, because God is God, there is truth about God, and, there, there, and anything outside of that is not true. So, you know, God is not a chameleon God. God doesn't become... And kind of blend in and say, well, you know, when I'm over here, I'll be this kind of God. And when I go over here, I'll be a different kind of God. And, you know, God isn't really interested in becoming what we want him to be. He is who he is. And the truth about God is vital for us to really understand him, understand who we are, understand life and forgiveness and grace, and understand how to live in Christ. And uh, so understand that there is a deceiver out there who is trying to deceive cultures and nations and individuals. Therefore, one more passage concerning the deception of the evil one. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, in other words, we're alive and we can see each other, we do not war against the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the true knowledge of God. Against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now I wish I had a whole sermon just to deliver on this one passage. But get the big idea. The big idea is this. That the battle for your life is the battle for your mind. That the evil one wants to change the way you think. He wants to trick you into deceiving. He wants to deceive you so that you think things about God that are not true. He calls them speculations about God. Or every lofty thing. In other words, wow, what's the latest, coolest idea about God? You know, these lofty things that are raised up about God. But they're actually against the knowledge of God. They're against the truth about God. And he says, therefore, we need to take every thought captive. Meaning as we're thinking thoughts, especially thoughts about life and about God and about who we are and who he is, as we're thinking thoughts about God we, and we're hearing things about God, we need to take every thought captive. And the metaphor is kind of, you need to grab that thought and examine it against obedience to Christ, against following Jesus, against the words and teachings of Jesus. And if it doesn't line up, you need to get rid of it. So that's what he's thinking. Because if not, false thinking about God and about yourself will get implanted in your mind, and it becomes like a fortress in your mind that has to be deconstructed and torn down and gotten rid of. And once you believe false teaching about God long enough, it becomes kind of cemented in your thinking. It's like a, a mental fortress of an idea that will wreck your life if you don't learn how to get rid of it. So he says, beware and use the Word of God and the power of God to deconstruct these false ideas so that we can live according to truth. I don't have time to go into it in this week, but next week you're going to see that the armor of God that we're going to study for two weeks, several pieces of the armor of God are based on knowing truth. You confront deception with truth. So the more you're grounded deep in the truth, it helps guard your mind, guard your heart, guard your life from buying into the ideas, the deception of the culture, the deception of the evil one being perpetrated through the culture to you because you can identify it as wrong, as evil. So watch out, watch out for that. Okay, so just understand that the battle is really a battle for the mind. When you talk about spiritual warfare, it's more than anything else that deals with how you think. It's Satan's attempt, not just directly as if Satan himself is talking to you all the time, but he talks to us through his demonic forces. He talks mostly, I believe, through their influence on culture, on education, on media, so that he can reach the vast number of people. That's where real spiritual warfare is going on. To be honest, most of us are small fry in the battle. So most of us are not going to get a whole lot of direct demonic attention most likely not that that can't happen you need to be aware of it but you know if, if you're satan and you're wanting to influence the world you're going to have world forces of darkness in heavenly places influencing even nations 
that's where the real battles probably are being waged. But individually, take every thought captive, examine it according to the truth of God's word. So Satan is, number one, he represents darkness while claiming to be light. He rep- he's the deceiver, father of lies. Thirdly, he's the accuser of the brethren. I got this from uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. The accuser of the brethren, questioning our faith and God's faithfulness. I think that's what he accuses. He accuses God of not being faithful, and he accuses us of not really being of the faith. Revelation 12.10, accuser of the brethren. Do we have that? Revelation 12.10? Maybe not. Okay. Oh, there it is. I knew we had it. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, and he who accuses them before our God day and night. It's Satan's nature to accuse us. Now what's he, what's he accuse us of? He comes when we sin, and he says, and you claim to be a Christian. How, you, you must not even be a believer. You sing that you're a child of God, but yet you, you live like that? You did that? You know, surely God's not going to love you. Surely God can't forgive you again. You know, if you've ever heard these messages whispered in your ear, it's the influence of the evil one, I believe, and of his influence in our, in our lives trying to get us to, to, to feel guilty and accused of not being worthy of the grace of God. And let me tell you something. Grace is never earned. Get grounded in the grace of God and you understand it's not, about, it's not a matter about being worthy of the grace of God. So next time Satan whispers to you and says, Dale, what kind of a jerk are you? I mean, why did you do that again? Surely you call yourself a pastor on top of everything else. The answer to that is, you know something? I know that I'm yet to become all that God wants me to be. Man, I'm so thankful for his grace. Hey, you know, evil one, thanks for reminding me of the grace of God. Because I guarantee you, Satan does not, he does not like you to think about grace. And it's why 1 John 1, 1.9 says, and if we sin, and we do, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sin, who is before the Father. See, so even when I sin... If I breathe spiritually, we taught you this a few weeks ago, and I confess my sin, and as a part of confessing my sin, I I remind myself of the grace of God. I remind myself of being forgiven by His grace and love just the way I am. And, And what that does is that draws me back to want to follow Christ. Instead of listening to the accusation of the evil one that says, what kind of a jerk are you? What kind of a poor Christian are you? How do you call yourself a child of God? You shouldn't even sing that song when Paige leads it. See, don't, don't buy into those lies that, uh, that you, uh, we often, uh, often tell ourselves. So he's the accuser of the brethren, the deceiver who wants to spread falsehood instead of truth, uh, the fourth one is he's the tempter. That's where most of you would have started. When I think of Satan, who is he? Well, he's the tempter. And we see him in Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 7, in the temp- temptation of Adam and Eve. Now, I knew we wouldn't have time to go into these on detail, so let me give them to you in three short phrases. When he tempted Adam and Eve, he tempted Adam and Eve in three ways. 
to give up on God, to give in to sin, and then to get mad at each other. And we see it in the create. We see it right there in the Adam and Eve story. Okay, Satan tempted him first. Me break him down one at a time. Here they are. Number one, the temptation to give up on God. You know, First Thessalonians chapter three. Read it this week when you do the daily encounters with God, because it talks about how Paul said, "Man, I was worried about you, so I sent to check in on your faith." For fear, notice the middle of the verse, for fear that the tempter, referring to the evil one, might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. What's he talking about? That they would not be standing firm in the Lord. So you're tempted to give up on God. Uh, In the creation account, when he tempted Eve, and Eve said, no, 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 we're not supposed to eat of that tree, you know, because God said, if you eat of that tree, you'll surely die. So what did Satan say? He said, you will surely not die. So he challenged God. He challenged the faithfulness and truthfulness of God. So you're tempted to give up on God. Number two, you're tempted to give in to sin. 1 Corinthians 7. I'm not going to show you that verse, but read it this week. You're tempted to give up on God, give in to sin, or if he can't get you on those two, he'll, he'll do the third one. He'll tempt you to get mad at one another and stay mad. Now, this one is right from Ephesians, so I have to show it to you. Chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry. It's going to happen. Yet when you're angry, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger and give the devil an opportunity. Opportunity to destroy marriages, to destroy churches, to destroy friendships. Why? Because we do something that harms one another because we're all sinful And then we get mad and we're not willing to forgive one another. And the devil sees that as an opportunity to move in, destroy relationships. Next thing you know, he'll separate you from Seacoast or to any other church because you get mad at somebody. And then you get mad at somebody, he he moves you away from the family of God. And then he'll tempt you to sin and then he'll tempt you to give up on God. So Satan will work you either direction. See, some of us are tempted more to give up on God if we're suffering, going through a hard time. Or others of us are struggling with temptation with a particular sin or habit, and others are dealing with relational conflict. Satan doesn't care where he attacks. He'll take you down in whatever your area of weakness is. That's the big idea. So finally, man, this is a depressing sermon, amen? (laughs) Better not say amen. Okay, yeah. It's not, you know, it, it's, it's not depressing, although this is, this is serious stuff. So what's the key to victory? If the nature of the enemy is he is very real, very powerful, very strategic, the schemes of the enemy is the use of deception, the use of lies, the use of accusation that you're not worthy of God's grace, etc., the use of accusations, and then the use of temptation to give up, give in, or get mad then what's our answer for victory? Two key phrases. Verse 10 says, Therefore, walk in His strength. Walk in the strength of the Lord, in in His might, not your own. So you've got to walk in His strength. You've got to walk in His strength. We're going to study that over the next two weeks. But in the root of it is walk with the power of His Spirit, empowered by His Spirit, His Word, and His people. That's where the power comes from. Walk in his strength, not your own. Don't be so arrogant as to think that the enemy can't take you down. The moment you think he can't take me down, 
you're just like those ships in Pearl Harbor. Walk in His strength, and then lastly, put on His armor. Therefore, put on the full armor of God that you might be able to stand firm. What is the full armor of God? For the next two weeks, we're going to describe not one, not two, but seven pieces of armor described by God, essential for your spiritual success if you want to be all that Christ wants you to be. Do not miss. Cancel the trip to Maui. Or at least go online and listen. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for your armor. Thank you for your strength. Thank you today for just your increasing our awareness that we have a serious enemy that is a real threat to our love for God, our resistance of sin, and even our relationships with one another. So I pray, Father, that uh, today we would commit ourselves afresh to be on alert, to be aware and to live with an awareness there is a spiritual battle going on around us. It's going on at a national level, a cultural level, even an individual level. So, Father, thank you for your strength and your armor that uh, gives us assurance that we can stand firm against the schemes of our enemy. Father, even as we end our worship now with going to the Lord's table, we want to take a few minutes and worship You by simply confessing our sin and cleansing ourselves under Your grace and then partaking of the bread and the cup as reminders of all that You did to give us life. So we worship You now in Christ's name. Amen. If you're new to Seacoast, um, some weeks, some months, we celebrate the Lord's table in this way, where we want you to sit and just pray, prepare your heart, confess any sin that God brings to mind if it's lingering, you know. And then once you know that you are under His grace, you know your faith is in Him, then approach one of the four tables around the room and partake in these elements, the bread representing the body of Jesus, the cup representing the blood of Jesus, the foundation of our faith and our life in Him. Thank you.